know. My wife and I used to live here in central Indiana. We now live in northern Indiana, and we're on our way to go to Togo, West Africa. All right, so that, if you haven't heard about it yet, uh, come to one of our sessions tomorrow or Sunday. We'll be happy to tell you all about it and what this thing called medical evangelism is. All right, so our text today is drawn from the 13th chapter of the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible or a device, feel free to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 13. Uh, we'll be there uh, shortly. The scripture itself says, uh, Jesus is speaking and says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let us pray. Our Father, we do pray that you will give us wisdom to understand your word. We pray that you'll give us ears to hear it, that you'll give us hearts to be sensitive to your leading, give us wills that can be bent to your own. And Lord, I do pray that you'll help us to emulate uh, your son as he came to the earth and proclaimed your kingdom and that we would in turn spread that to others. We do pray for your blessing on the time we have together. In the name of our Lord, we pray. Amen. So the master was walking along the sea and he spied the men laboring. Follow me, he said to them, and I will make you fishers of men. This they did because fishing was something they knew. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now the fishing that they knew, of course, was very, very different than the fishing you or I may know, right? We're not fishermen like the disciples were fishermen, at least I don't think anyone here probably is. When we fish, we may fish for relaxation. We may go outside and just want to enjoy the time out there. And what can be more relaxing than hearing the first casts plop into the water as the waves gently lap against the side of your boat? We may fish for the sport of it. And what can be more exciting than fighting a fish, seeing it hooked and then jump out of the water and then leap below your boat as it tries to get away and you struggle against uh, the big bass or the big pike or whatever it is that you're fishing for. We may fish just to enjoy nature, and I can still remember the times where I was out in my grandfather's boat and seeing the fog roll off the lake early in the morning in northern Minnesota. I can still hear the loons calling to one another because it is great to be out in God's creation and just to see all the wonderful things that he has made. And believe it or not, some people actually fish because they like to eat fish. Those are all reasons to be out there. But this is not the fishing that the disciples knew. They fished of a different sort. They would fish for their livelihood. They would do this every day, six days a week. Sometimes they would fish all through the night because this is what they knew. Now, the genius of Jesus' teaching is that he would speak to people in a way that they would understand, in a way that spoke to them exactly where they were, uh, both uh, socially and mentally. We sometimes, uh, because we're trying to counteract the... Uh, incorrect idea that Jesus was just a teacher, de-emphasized his teaching, but I think that's a mistake because Jesus was a tremendous teacher. It is the genius of Jesus' teaching that can go up to a woman who's pulling a, a bucket out of a well and draw a direct connection between a man's thirst for water and the soul's thirst for God. It is the genius of Jesus' teaching that could take his disciples to the outskirts of Jerusalem and to point out the uh, graves, the, uh, the big tombs of the prophets that were being cared for by the Pharisees that were painted white and were gleaming in the Mediterranean sun and say, look at those, you see that? That's what hypocrisy looks like. It is beautiful on the outside, it is shining on the outside and is full of death and destruction within. 
but that is how he would teach them. It is the genius of Jesus' teaching that would take them and show them, here's how you pray, and tell them a story about a man who would constantly wake up his neighbor asking for bread and saying, you need to be persistent in your prayer because that is what uh, the Lord wants for us. And so he says that persistence in prayer is something. And so when Jesus spoke to these men, he called them this way, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they followed him because fishing is what they knew. He didn't call them to be rabbis, to be teachers of the law. He didn't call them to be rulers or to be kings. They were fishermen, so he called them to be fishermen. It would be like if he called me, and if those of you who've come to my session know that I'm a medical doctor, if he called me outside of the operating room and said, follow me and I will make you a healer of men's souls. Or if you're a teacher, follow me and I will make you educators of men's souls. Or mothers, I will help follow me and I will help you to raise the children of God. It is speaking to people where they are. Well, these people were fishermen, so he spoke to them as fishermen. Construction workers, follow me, and I will make you a builder of my church. Do you see the point? They were fishermen, so he called them to be fishers. But what he was calling them to do ultimately was to be builders of his kingdom. And that's what he's calling all of us to do. uh, Kingdom building is a cast that is given to all of us. It is not given to just pastors. It's not given to just missionaries. It is given to God's people to continue the work of calling people from darkness to light to embrace the grace of God through Jesus Christ and to become his people so that they can ultimately be his kingdom. This is a task that is given to all of us, and this is the task that was given to the disciples then. The mouth that preaches is useless without the hands that serve. The feet that carry the gospel are ineffective without the ears that seek to hear the prayers, the prayer requests, and take those before God. All of us are called to this work of building the kingdom of God. It is given to us today. It is given to the disciples then. So that is why when the master called them and said, follow me, I will make you fishers of men, they understood and they followed him because fishing is something they did understand. Now the kingdom was a completely different matter. That was something they didn't understand at all. And Jesus had to spend a lot of time explaining what is this thing called the kingdom and how does it look. And sometimes when he's being more explicit, he will oftentimes relate to the idea that the kingdom of God is imminent. And that is one of his major emphases, that it is something that is very close to being present. And he would say things such as, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel in Mark 1.15 or in Luke 17.21, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And if you read the New Testament and you see phrases like the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, or the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is near. Those are, those are examples of Jesus over and over emphasizing the immediacy of the kingdom. Not only that, he also describes the citizens of the kingdom, uh, sometimes describing those who belong to the kingdom. In Matthew 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Or Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Other times he describes what it takes to be great in the kingdom of God. That's seen in Matthew chapter 18, verse 4. Whosoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this was something the disciples did not understand because if you read the scripture and you read the gospels, the picture you get of the New Testament uh, of the gospels' disciples is that they were constantly arguing over who would be greatest. And so he had to spend time correcting that and explaining that as far as who's going to be great in the kingdom. It is the one who is the servant, the one who is humble. But probably the greatest examples of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom come from these things we call the kingdom parables. And these are found in many places, but Matthew has a great collection of them. These are some of Jesus' most powerful example, uh, most powerful teachings about the kingdom. One of them is shown on the screen behind me. You probably know this story, right? This is the parable of the sower. It's found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 9. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. 
Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell among good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the parable of the sower. What is the kingdom like? Well, it's like a guy who goes out there and he throws seed all over his field. And some of it's going to land on the side where the ground is too tough and the seed is just going to sit there and it's going to get gobbled away. Some of it's going to fall in areas where it's very rocky and it's going to sprout up, but it doesn't have a root, so it's not going to last. This is not a true substantial growth. There's going to be seed that falls among the weeds and it's going to get choked out because it is too, just like people are too focused on the cares of the world, this one is not able to overcome the influence of the weeds all around them. And then some, the genuinely growing seed, is going to be profitable and is going to grow and produce fruit. That is one example of a kingdom parable. Another one is the wheat and the tares. We don't need to read all of these in their entirety, but you can see from the picture behind me that wheat and tares, which are shown on the split screen, look an awful lot alike, don't they? And they do right into the time of the harvest because the wheat turns golden and the, and the tares still say the same color of green. So if you went out there and your goal was to go out while they were still growing up, and select one after the, from the other, you probably wouldn't be able to do it. You'd probably pull out some of the good stuff while you're trying to get rid of the bad. And so in this parable, which is found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, a man goes out and he ends up having an enemy who sows tares in the middle of his, or weeds in the middle of his wheat field, and he can't le take them out because he doesn't want to hurt the wheat. So he lets it grow up until the harvest, and then at the end he takes it and he can sort it and throw the evil stuff away and keep the good. And the picture of this reminds us that in this era, this day and age in which we live, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world exist side by side. There are people, God is not willing to judge the world in its entirety right now because he doesn't want to destroy the kingdom he is being building. He wants to continue to increase his kingdom. He wants to continue to allow it to be healthy because it is not time to harvest it to its maturity. Another kingdom parable shows up in Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. This is the parable of the pearl of great price and also of the uh, field. And in both of these parables, a man is willing to sell everything he has because he finds something that is such great value. And the lesson of this parable is that the kingdom of God is of such great value that if you gave up everything else in your life to get it, it would be worth it. It is more valuable than anything else in your life. Any relationship, any property, anything you have pales in comparison to being in a right relationship with God. He also shared a parable of the scribe, which is found in Matthew chapter 13, verses verse 52. I don't have a picture of that one, but that is a man who is a scribe of the law. And he says, what is the kingdom of God like? It is a person who goes out and he brings you to his home and he shows you treasures that are both old and treasures that are new. He has antiques and he also has the newest gadgets. He is showing you both the old things and the new things that are valuable. And this is a picture of people who have both the Old Testament revelation and the new because that is what is describing the kingdom of God. He taught them the parable of the unforgiving servant. This is in Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 to 35. This is a man who had an unforgivable debt, something he could never pay back, and he was in danger of losing his freedom, losing his family, losing everything he had, and being thrown into prison. And instead, his master showed mercy on him. And then what does he do? He goes out, he finds a guy who owes him a few bucks, and he grabs him by the neck, he throws him down, he takes him to the authorities, and he has him thrown in prison over a tiny amount. And as a result, he loses the opportunity to be restored from his master, and he gets the penalty that he actually deserved. And the lesson is that the kingdom of God is made up from people who have received God's mercy and in turn show that mercy to others. They are naturally going to reflect God's mercy because they understand it. There's the parable of the laborers, which is found in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. This is a man who is hiring people. 
And you may know this story. He hires them throughout the day, some at the beginning, some in the middle, some towards the afternoon, and some for the very last hour of the day to come and to work in his field. And at the end of the day, he ends up paying them exactly the same amount. And there's grumbling among the people who agreed to work for that amount because they thought they should get more. But the lesson is that the blessings of the kingdom are dependent on the goodness of the king and not on our own labors or our own efforts. And that is the parable of the labors. Jesus told a parable of the, of the wedding feast in Matthew chapter 22, verses 2 to 14. This is about a king who invites his friends to a great uh, feast, and they end up rejecting this invitation. So he goes out and has his uh, servants go all the way to the road and find strangers, anyone who would come and would celebrate his feast, and he ends up filling his house. And the lesson of this is that those who answer the call to the kingdom are not always those we would expect, right? There are people who, ex who, and who do accept it and people who don't, and the ones who we expect to accept the uh, message of the gospel are not always the ones we would think that would do so. There's the parable of the ten virgins. This is found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. This is a, told the story of women who were supposed to attend a wedding, and half of them were running short on oil, so they had to run off and buy some more. And while they were gone, the wedding started, the door closed, and they were locked out. And the lesson is that the kingdom of God is made up by those, of those people who would naturally look for it, who are prepared uh, for the kingdom of heaven. There's my favorite one, which is the one I almost preached on tonight, but we won't uh, do that. That is found in Matthew chapter 13. It is the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. So this is a picture of mustard seed. You can see these are very, very small. In fact, if I had a mustard seed, you couldn't tell if I was holding it up. If I dropped it on the ground, you probably couldn't find it again. But if you planted it and you cared for it and it was allowed to grow, some varieties of this can grow up to 30 feet in height. They can grow so large that they can have animals coming from far and wide to nest in, those, in this, that plant itself and find security. And the same parable is told in the form of the leaven. Now what is leaven? Well, leaven is yeast. And it doesn't take much if you do any baking. You don't have to take five pounds of flour and five pounds of yeast. You can take a lot of flour and a small amount of yeast, mix in some water and some sugar and give it time. And over time it will fill the entire ball of dough because that is how the kingdom of God works. The lesson is that the kingdom of God may start small it may be insignificant in the world's eyes, but if you give it time, it will continue to grow and continue to expand to the point that it will have people from every tribe, every nation, every language, every tongue from all over the world because that is who God is calling to himself. And it sounds uh, amazing, and it would also sound ridiculous if you thought about it from a human standpoint. I mean, if you think about it from the very beginnings of the church, after Christ had ascended to heaven, he had just a small handful of believers in a second-story room just waiting for him to do something. But when he did, they were able to go and turn the world upside down and go and threaten the Jewish religious order, the Roman governmental order, and continue to persist to this day where they are now in every continent and in most countries of the world, there are people who would at least recognize the name of Christ and many, many who would accept it. And there are people in numerous languages who now can read for themselves the gospel of Jesus Christ and who have accepted it because that is the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. But these men were fishermen, so when, it shouldn't surprise us that when Jesus tells them a parable of the kingdom, he includes one about fishing. And that's the one we read before. We'll read it again just to remind us. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers. But the bad they threw away. Uh, so, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what is the kingdom of heaven like? It's like a net that you throw out into the sea. Now, herein lies the difference between the way we think of fishing and the way they think of fishing. 
right? We think of fishing in what I'm going to call active terms. We think of fishing as an active process by which we would try to lure a fish in. When we go fishing, we think of, well, what size hook do I need? How deep do I want it to be in the water? If we want it to be at the top of the water, we attach a bobber, right? If we want it to be at the bottom, we attach a sinker. If we want it to be moving through the water, we may either move our boat or we may just reel it in and make sure we keep a constant motion. We may fish in the deep, we may fish in the weeds, we may fish all over the place. It just depends on what we're trying to do. We are trying to actively lure what is in the water with our bait. We also choose the kind of bait, whether you want a worm or a leech or something artificial. And probably the most active form of fishing of all is the one that was very popular in uh, river country where I did my surgery training. I did not have time to learn it, and that is fly fishing. And fly fishermen are obsessed with the various kinds of flies they can buy or even make and the way in which they do their ties to get them on and the way in which they can cast just to get the lure to float along the top of the water the same way a bug would land on the water so they can attract the ever-elusive trout. And that is the way in which they would fish. That is an active fishing. But that is not the type of fishing that the disciples would do. They practice instead a kind of passive fishing. So this is active fishing. They are doing everything they can to lure the fish in. The disciples instead would do more of a passive fishing. Now, please don't let me uh, be mistaken here. Passive fishing does not mean lazy fishing. This was very laborious. They worked far harder for their fish than we ever do for ours. But they did something that wasn't trying to actively uh, lure the fish in. They were just trying to catch whatever was in a region. And so they would fish by means of net. And so this is an example of a casting net. So a casting net would usually be a big circle. It would have weights in that day and age, probably stones attached to the outside. They could either wade into the water or more appropriately go out into a boat and then throw it off to the side, let it sink for several feet, and then use a rope to pull it, to cinch it up, and then to pull up whatever was in that part of the water they would catch. They weren't trying to lure it in. They weren't trying to attract it. They were trying to ensnare it by just encircling as much water as possible and catch whatever was there. That is their means of fishing. It is passive, but it is very, very laborious. And if you remember the story from the gospel, one of the first times Jesus encountered his disciples, they were coming back from a fishing trip after fishing all night and not catching anything. And what did he tell them? Cast your net on the other side of the boat. So they did, and of course, if you remember your story, they caught more fish than the boat itself could handle, and they needed support so they didn't lose their boat just to bring in that large haul of fish. That is what's called a casting net. And so they would let that out into the deep water, and they would cast everything that's out there. However, the word that's used here is somewhat different. And we don't know if our disciples used this kind of net or not, but they would have been familiar with it because they were used in this era and in this region of the world. This is what's called a drag net. Now, a drag net is related. It also is a net, but it has two uh, surfaces. It has a top surface, which is lined with something that helps it float, like cork. And it has a bottom surface that is weighted down, again, probably with rocks. And there were two ways in which they could use a drag net. They could have it between two boats, and they could basically go out to the middle of the water hang it between the two boats and just herd the fish into the shore. Or what they often would do, and what's probably being described in this parable here, is they could use it in a big loop. So they could have someone to take, they could leave one end at the shore with some men, they could take the other end in a boat. And some of these from that era actually measured half a mile in size, go out and then loop back, and then the men on the shore would start pulling it in. And so this is a picture from the 1920s in the Middle East of people using a dragnet. They were pulling in the fish, all right? They were trying to bring them in with a dragnet. And that is kind of the picture that is being told here. And they would try to catch everything that was in that area. And after they brought all the fish onto the sand, then the sorting would begin. And so they would sit down, and if you know your law, the Jewish law, you know that there are fish that are 
kosher and fish that are not, right? There are fish that are not allowed to be eaten under the Jewish dietary law, so they would sort them based on that. They would probably also sort them based on appearance and health because you don't want to get a reputation for selling bad fish. And so they would sort all the good fish into one area and the bad fish they would leave behind. And the good fish they would pack up and they had fresh fish markets in Tiberias and Caesarea, which were local. And some of them they would even pack into salt and send all the way down to Jerusalem, which had a gate that was specially designed to bring in such fragrant produce as the fish that came all the way from the north. And so they would bring those in. And that is the picture that is being told here. It is a dragnet. It is being spread out. And so when I say passive fishing, I don't mean there's not labor involved. I mean that they are not trying to attract any fish with this, are they? There's no bait involved. They are trying to encircle. And the goal is to spread your net as widely and as thoroughly as possible so that you can get as many fish as possible ensnared in that. So building the kingdom is a picture of this kind of net, of this kind of dragnet. Now, I think when we talk about evangelizing the world, we tend to think of this as being a highly active process, a process where we have to go out and we have to lure in the lost. And I don't think that's what the scripture teaches. We're not supposed to go out there and make certain things more attractive, more shiny, so that the fish of the world get attracted and come in. We're supposed to spread the message of the gospel as widely and as thoroughly as possible and let it as it is designed to do, bring in all the people God would have it to do. It is not those who are supposed to be scholars of the Bible who are supposed to be the only people who evangelize. It is not those people who are supposed to be trained in persuasion and argumentation who are supposed to be the only ones who evangelize. It is God's people, wherever they are, who are given the responsibility of spreading his word, of spreading his gospel. It is not merely those who are, wild, who are, who are wise by worldly standards who are supposed to be the ones to evangelize the world. God is looking for men and women who will spread the net. The catch that it's brought in, that's God's responsibility. It is his word that does not come back void. It is not our way of phrasing his word that doesn't do that. It is his spirit who draws men to himself, who convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He doesn't need us to come up with some new way to repackage the gospel in a shiny form that attracts people to it. We just need to be faithful in spreading it and allow him to do the work. He doesn't need us to do a good market analysis in order to effectively spread the gospel. He doesn't need our churches to have smoke machines and children's carnivals in order to effectively spread the gospel. He needs us to be faithful in uh, spreading the simple message that Jesus died for them. So this is what they would have understood, the disciples who were Jesus' uh, followers here. They understood fishing, and so they would understand the difference between an active lure and this idea of spreading it out as far as possible. And there's another implication about this, isn't there? Because active fishing tends to be targeted. If you're going to actively fish, you're probably going to go out and you're going to fish for a specific kind of fish. Right? You're going to go out and say, well, I want panfish today, so you're going to put uh, bait on, the top of a, on a small hook on a bobber so you can fish towards the top. Or if you like fish that eat mud, if that's what you want to eat, you would attach a sinker and the stinkiest bait you can find so you can attract a catfish. If you want to fish for what my grandfather liked to fish, for a northern pike, you would get a very shiny uh, type of lure and you would move it through the water, usually trailing behind your boat close to the weeds. For my grandfather, this was a black and white lure. For me, it was a golden weedless because I got tired of stopping the boat every time I confused a weed for a fish. But that is active fishing. That is the attempt to lure something in, and it tends to be targeted. The people who are doing fly fishing, they are trying to get a specific kind of fish, the kind that eat those kind of lures. And if we think of fishing as a targeted process, as an active process, we're going to fall into the trap of only thinking we need to spread the gospel to those people who we are best connected to, 
the ones who think like us, the ones who have the same standard of living as us, the same language as us, who live in the same part of town. And we're going to miss the fact that God expects his kingdom to be spread among the entire world. He does not want to limit it to a small group of fish. He wants to connect fish, as this passage here says, of every kind. And that's a very unusual way to speak of fish, because usually when that, pa- that word is being used in the New Testament, it's referring to people. It is referring to the nations they are from, or from their ethnicity, or from their background, or their language. But his goal here is to make that same point. God wants to catch some of every kind of fish. He wants them to all be brought in. And so that is the goal of spreading the net. And if we have a targeted approach, we're going to miss that. We're going to focus in on only those people who we think would accept the gospel message and instead miss out. And so when he called them to be fishers of men, he wasn't calling them to be fishers of the people who they best knew. He called them to be fishers of all men. And this is something the disciples struggled with. Right? They probably expected, well, we're going to be Jews. We're going to spread the message of the Jewish Messiah among the Jewish people. And so we're going to attract the leaders, the teachers of the law, because they're going to understand who the Messiah is. We're going to attract the rulers, the important people. And we're going to be there too. And instead, they attracted other uneducated Galileans. They attracted zealots like uh, Simon, who tried to uh, fight Rome. And a Roman stooge named Matthew collected taxes on their behalf from his countrymen. But at least those people were Jewish, Right? But that wasn't who Jesus limited himself to. Jesus had this very unusual habit where he would take his disciples through on the path from Galilee all the way down to Judea. And instead of going around the outside through the mountain pass, he would go right through the middle of a land called Samaria. And the Jews didn't do this because they didn't respect or have any love for the Samaritans and vice versa. But Jesus would go through there and he would take his time and he would stop and he would preach in villages. And it was in a Jewish uh, village, I'll remind you, that the disciples heard Jesus say, lift up your eyes and look, because there is a harvest that you need to see. Because he was reaping from Samaritan wells as well. He was pulling in Samaritan fish. And although they were called to be fishers of men, no one told them to be fishers of Samaritans. And yet they had to learn that Jesus expected them to spread the gospel to those people as well. And they learned it so well that they didn't limit themselves just to Samaritans, but they went to Greeks and to Romans and to Egyptians and to Asians and to Africans. And the gospel message has continued to spread because the net has continued to go out to the point that now we are seeing God's word continue to be proclaimed to every tribe, every nation, every language, to the point that now we have over 2,000 languages that have at least some portion of the Bible in them so those people in their own language can praise God and can learn about him because that is what is called spreading the net. It is taking it as widely and as thoroughly as possible. So here's our point. We would tend naturally to want to target our evangelism to those people we're most comfortable with, and God wants us to get out of that comfort zone and make sure that we're spreading it to everybody because he has people who we would never expect who are ready to answer the call of the gospel on their lives, who are ready to accept Jesus as Christ as their Savior. And spreading the net as widely as possible helps prevent that tendency. The work of spreading the net, that's evangelism. That's kingdom building. That's what missions is. Now, I know I've been referring to this as a passive form of mission, so I want to say again, this is not lazy fishing. It does require labor. This doesn't mean you have no obligations. God wants us to get out there and to spread his word. It doesn't mean that there's no value in learning how to share your word effectively. All right, Bethany and I took a a course with ABWE on that. We even got certification to teach that because it is important to learn how to appropriately share your faith in a way that is understandable. It doesn't mean that you don't learn about the way in which the people around you think so that you can speak to them in a way they understand, the way Jesus spoke to his disciples and to Israel around him. But it is what it basically means. It means, number one, we don't change the message to make it more attractive. We're not in the luring business, we're in the net spreading business. 
We're not here to change the gospel message to just emphasize certain parts that are going to make it uh, make it attractive to someone. We're here to faithfully proclaim it. All right, there are people out there who will leave off the sin part of the gospel. All right, this is the love wins crowd. They will go out there and tell you that Jesus Christ is great and you need to follow him, and they will not mention that anything is a sin and that you need to repent of anything because that is not the message. They are trying to make it attractive. There are people there who will say, well, if you follow Christ, you will have great health and you will have great wealth. This is the health and wealth gospel people. They are emphasizing something because they're taking the gospel message and they are trying to make it attractive. That is not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to proclaim it. It will bring the people in that God wants to bring in. He will do his work through us, but we just need to be faithful in doing that. Number two, it means that we're not supposed to target our message to one type of people. God is, has a purpose to draw people from every nation, every tribe, every language, and our goal is to see that being done by spreading the net as thoroughly and widely as possible. And third, we don't act as though the substance of our catch depends on us. They could spread a cast net or even a drag net out and not catch much, or they can spread it out and catch a lot. That is not saying anything about the faithfulness of the people who spread the net. Right? There are missionaries who are probably far more faithful than I will ever be, who may have far less uh, converts than I may see. But that does not mean that they are not faithful in being right in the way in which they spread the word. It means that that was a time when God was tilling and preparing the land and preparing for a harvest, and some people minister in times of great harvest. It is not a comment on our effectiveness when we see uh, converts made. That is God showing his work, and thankfully through us. In fact, there's also an interesting thing that happens when the net gets spread widely, and this is seen in the latter part of the parable. When the net was full, the scripture says, the men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but they threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. So when the net gets spread rightly, one other interesting thing happens, and that is that sometimes it ensnares things that actually are not proper. It will bring in people who do not actually belong to the kingdom of God. There are people, and this is what we're, I think we're seeing some of the fruits of in the Western world, who followed, who associated with the gospel because the rest of their family did, or because it got them some advantage at work or some advantage in their society. This is the same message that's being taught by the parable of the wheat and the tares, that uh, there are times when the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world are side by side. There are times when the net will bring people in who not, are not ultimately part of the kingdom. But here's the trick. We're not the ones who are supposed to be able to figure that out. In Jesus' interpretation of the parable, the ones who figure that out are the angels, people with far more spiritual insight than you or I have. And they don't do it during the fishing. They do it at the end when it's all brought in. So it is not for us to go in and say, well, this person's not a good fish. They're coming out. Or this person is a good fish. They're staying in. It is for us to spread the gospel as widely as possible, to faithfully uphold his word, to do what he tells us to do in the scriptures, and then to trust him for the results. And that is what is called spreading the net. The judgment about that is up to God and not up to us. Otherwise, we'll fall into the same trap of assuming we know best who God wants to bring into his kingdom rather than what he has said in his word. So the Lord who called the men on that shore to be fishers of men has called us to do the same thing. He has fish of other ponds. He has sheep of other pastures who will hear his voice and answer his gospel message. So let us join in his work and let us together spread the net, both here in Indianapolis and across the world together. Let's close in a word of prayer.